welcome to a video edition of the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. My name is Matthew Epinette, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center. In this episode of the podcast, we have Dr. Gilbert Mylander's presentation of the Kilner Bioethics Lectureship from March of this year. His talk encourages us to consider how we best view children as gifts to be received or as projects to be undertaken and what each view conveys about our own humanity. Since we have video of the lecture, we decided to make this our first video podcast. Of course, you can listen to it as an audio-only podcast, but for those who would like to see the lecture, this is, this is an option for this lecture. Before we get to the lecture, I want to ask you for a small favor. Would you go ahead and mark your calendar to save the date for next year's conference, June 27 through 29, 2024. The title of the conference is The Future of Health, Faith, Ethics, and Our MedTech World, and it comes from seeing the ways in which technology of all sorts continue to change our lives and our world. In my talk at this year's conference, I highlighted ways in which artificial intelligence and genetic engineering or editing through the technology known as CRISPR are already changing healthcare. As these and other technologies continue to develop and advance, what will the concept of health come to mean? How will we think about what it means to be healthy? How will technologies like this affect and change the practice of medicine and medical education? How does our Christian faith inform what we consider to be healthy and what options we'll pursue or avoid in the quest for health? That's June 27 through 29, 2024. The future of health, faith, ethics, and our medtech world, June 27 through 29. And now for Dr. Mylander's presentation of the 2023 John F. Kilner Bioethics Lectureship. Dr. Gilbert Mylander is a senior research professor at Valparaiso University and the Paul Ramsey Fellow at the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. He taught at the University of Virginia, at Oberlin College, and at Valparaiso University, where he held the Duesenberg Chair in Christian Ethics. He's a fellow of the Hastings Center and was a member of the President's Council on Bioethics from 2002 to 2009. He's published numerous articles and books on topics in theological ethics, Christian bioethics, and the Christian life. And here's Dr. Mylander on the meaning of children, competing narratives. Thank you, Michael. Let me say at the outset, if it turns out that I'm not speaking loud enough, you just got to wave your hand up there and I might or might not respond. Um, but um, it's a little, I find this a little eerie seeing myself on this screen over here. Um, uh, I'm just not quite sure what to make of that experience. But, uh, but anyway, um, I'm pleased to be here. And I'm uh, in particular pleased to uh, be given the opportunity to speak in this lecture series that was established to uh, honor the work of John Kilner, a work which includes his own scholarly writing, his service as uh, an editor bringing together the writings of others and his efforts to help build here at Trinity, a center where bioethics is done in uh, ways that are shaped by Christian belief, which means um, that it is, if not unique, at least uh, uh, rather dist distinctive in the world of academic uh, bioethics. 
And I think and hope that the topic that I am taking up this evening is one that um, has in fact been important in John's own thinking. Uh, so it, uh, it won't come as a surprise uh, uh, to him. I, I think I need to give you one warning at the, uh, at the start, warning about it, this won't become important until fairly near the end of the talk, but you have invited a Lutheran uh, to speak uh, tonight. Lutherans have a rather higher view of some of the sacraments than some of you perhaps do, and you'll just have to deal with that uh, <laughs> when the time comes. But it'll take us a long time to get there, so you know um, you can relax for quite a long time. What I want to think with you about uh, tonight might be broadly described just as the relation between parents and children, uh, also in some respects the meaning of sex and marriage. Um, uh, but you don't need me to tell you that these are subjects uh, that it's hard to talk about uh, today. We have no real shared script, no shared understanding in our culture of these matters, even though, of course, we know that in some way they are important uh, for human life. And of course, to be sure, many people would agree, many people would agree that wholly apart from any particular uh, religious beliefs, marriage does serve some important purposes in human society. Uh, it gives us a way of dealing with the fact of sexual difference between men and women, especially uh, including the vulnerabilities that women may experience in pregnancy and childbirth. It creates a form of life that holds together sexual attraction, uh, personal commitment, child care, and mutual economic and psychological assistance. And it provides a social context for the re rearing of children, maintaining connection between children and their parents and even uh, larger uh, uh, intergenerational ties. Those are all important matters. We'd be hard pressed to get along without some way of dealing with them, even if it sometimes seems that our society is going to try to do just that uh, these days. But all of that we could talk about just in terms of social and political well-being. Uh, there's nothing inherently uh, theological about it. And I'm afraid that sometimes when we do decide we need to talk theologically about it, we lapse all too easily into sort of vague ways of speaking, talking about uh, love in a kind of formless way, for instance, ways that don't actually uh, help all that much. And whenever that happens, uh, I often think of a story that G.K. Chesterton tells in his autobiography. He's talking about some of the intelligentsia of his day, though Chesterton didn't actually think that uh, they were all that uh, intelligent. Um, uh, but he mentions one man uh, for whom he had a great deal of respect, who he thought was insightful, a man named Edgar Jepson, uh, uh, whom we no longer kind of uh, remember any longer today. Uh, but then Chesterton recalls a conversation in which Jepson had been involved, but also another man, a man who had the, the, the tendency, uh, the habit of when he wanted to say something, would, would, uh, which he thought profound, would hold up his hand and he would say a thought. Uh, and then he'd say, you know, whatever it uh, was. And one time in one of these conversations, this, this other man held up his hand and said, a thought. All we need is love. And Chesterton said, Jeff, Jepson just couldn't take it uh, any longer. And so he just sort of exploded and he said, good God, man, you don't call that a thought, do you? Um, and uh, that in some ways is sort of the burden of what I want to say today. If we want to think as Christians about marriage, parents, and children, we have to do a little more than just have sort of a thought about uh, love. And that's what I hope to do, uh, uh, at least tonight. In the last half century or so, we have experienced what might be called a revolution in reproduction. 
We are likely to describe it as a technological revolution, and it is uh, that in many ways. Um, uh, but perhaps, at least as importantly, it is a revolution in our way of thinking about the relation between parents and children. And it may not always be easy to say which came first, changed thinking or changed technology. But however exactly we tell this story, a commitment to the use of uh, technologies of assisted reproduction is increasingly well established in our society and in many other societies in the world. And whether we make use of these technologies or not, you know, turn your face steadfastly against them. Doesn't matter, it, is, it will still be true that uh, even if we decide not to use them, we have to decide. We have to think about them in a way that uh, uh, earlier generations uh, would not have, and that makes a tremendous difference. Moreover, the goodness of such technologies, at least in my experience, is often taken for granted and even commended by many Christians. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, is that commendation grounded in important Christian commitments, or may it rather be grounded in feelings and emotions that seem to come naturally to us, but may sometimes not amount to much more than a thought. We can think first of where we are today, where this technological revolution has brought us, and then get around to trying to put it into a larger theological context. But I wanna take some time first, just to trace the course of this technological progress uh, uh, over the last 50 years. And it actually occurred to me uh, I mean, I'd already thought of what I wanted to talk about, but it occurred to me when I was putting this together that uh, this was a rather sort of striking thought for me. I'm actually considering the story of my professional life. Um, I've been thinking about these topics for 50 years or so, and that's about how long this has been going on. Um, uh, I didn't think I was that old, you know, but um, uh, the... Uh, 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 this last half century uh, has been a time in which uh, extraordinary change has taken place. And so I wanted to sort of first kind of trace that story in some detail. Artificial insemination, of course, has been used for a long time in animal breeding, and its use even among human beings is uh, at least a century old. But the more far-reaching technological breakthrough came with the, uh, the procedure of in vitro fertilization in which sperm and ova are externalized and then joined in the laboratory where fertilization takes place. And the resulting embryo or more likely embryos can then be transferred to a woman's uterus in the hope of achieving a pregnancy. The first child known to have been produced by means of IVF, who was called at that time in a sort of a quaint formulation, the first test tube baby, I mean, I remember, I can remember, you know, ourselves talking uh, about that. That child was born in 1978, about the time I started paying attention to these things. Now, however, approximately four and a half decades later, uh, it's estimated that more than 400,000 children are born worldwide each year from IVF. IVF was first developed in order to assist married couples struggling with infertility. And when we think of that as its purpose, we may quite easily assume that it must be good and praiseworthy because whatever one's reservations about the use of this technology uh, for reproductive purposes, sympathy for infertile couples comes quite naturally to us. This may be true, especially for many Christians. Accustomed as we are to thinking of children as in the psalmist's terms, uh, a heritage of the Lord, and sympathetic as we are to the natural desire to have a child of one's own, 
we may be reluctant to raise questions or concerns about the use of IVF. Surely, however, the technology has now developed and will continue to develop in such far-reaching ways that to think of it simply as help for infertile couples is pretty much to miss the point of what's, uh, what's become of this development. In fact, in the minds of many people, it has relatively little connection to the institution of marriage, that is to the desire of a husband and wife to see their marriage express itself in a child who incarnates their one flesh union. Rather, it is about individual desire, individual desire to experience a certain kind of fulfillment. To read maybe the most uh, widely read book on the subject in the last 20 years, John Robertson's Children of Choice, uh, and that's exactly, uh, it's an individual desire for a certain kind of fulfillment that's crucial, or he thinks crucial to human beings. We need therefore to ask ourselves whether our understanding of the meaning of the presence of children is being formed by uh, basic Christian belief that a child is God's gift to those who are married, or whether our attitudes and actions increasingly reflect a belief that what counts is satisfying the desire to have a child of one's own, and perhaps even a particular kind of child. We need to ask ourselves whether the gift of a child is grounded in the mutual bodily self-giving of husband and wife, or whether it's grounded as human choice and determination. IVF can and often does involve much more than simply taking sperm from a man and an ovum from his wife, uniting them in the laboratory, and then transferring the resulting embryo to the woman's uterus. IVF can also be a way to produce children free of certain defects or children of a desired sex. A couple or an individual desiring children may commission others to fill some of the necessary roles in reproduction. So the sperm or ova or both may come from, not from the commissioned parents, but from people whom we call donors, uh, though in fact they uh, are often vendors who have sold their, uh, their gametes. Um, the, embed the, the embryos produced in the laboratory, whether from one's own or uh, donated gametes may be transferred not to the woman who has commissioned the reproductive project, but to another woman who serves as a surrogate, agreeing to gestate the child and then give it after birth to the couple or the individual desiring child. Because more embryos may be produced in the laboratory than can be safely transferred to a woman's uterus, the commissioning couple may decide to freeze the remaining embryos uh, that they don't need or don't need at least at that time. They may use them at a later date uh, to try again to conceive a child, or they may never use them, leaving the embryos frozen indefinitely or discarded or perhaps made available for use in research. We should, however, train ourselves, whatever we think of the process, we should train ourselves to call such embryos unimplanted embryos. They're usually called, if you read the literature, listen to people, they're called pre-implantation embryos, as if we're just an accident of nature that they were sort of floating around in this pre-implantation state. They're not that, they're unimplanted embryos and we should call them that to remind ourselves that um, uh, it's, a, it's a condition that we have willed and chosen. It's not just an accident of nature. Such frozen unimplanted embryos now number in the hundreds of thousands, even uh, uh, millions. And our society seems willing to permit that number to grow, uh, continue to grow indefinitely. Many of these frozen embryos will never be needed or wanted by those who produce them in an effort to achieve a pregnancy. What then is to be done with them? There is no satisfactory answer to that question. I just wanna repeat that sentence. 
Say, what's to be done with these frozen embryos? No longer wanted by the people who produce them? There is no satisfactory answer to that question. As long as we permit and even encourage freezing of embryos, we create for ourselves a moral problem for which there is no good solution. Leaving embryos frozen indefinitely seems unsatisfactory, but using them for research, which will inevitably involve their destruction, would be wrong. They have already been used once as a means to someone else's reproductive project, and being used once is probably enough. My own personal preface, not all of you will agree with it, uh, probably. Um, uh, I said there is no good solution uh, to this. Um, uh, I would thaw them uh, and let them die. I would do it in the context of some kind of liturgical setting uh, devised precisely uh, for that. You're probably not gonna see that solution catch on uh, uh, across society, but um, uh, that seems to me to be the best we can do in the circumstances that we have uh, ourselves uh, created. One proposed solution though, to the problem of surplus frozen embryos, a solution that has been attractive to some, maybe to many uh, Christians, has been called embryo adoption. This means simply that a woman and generally uh, her husband make use of IVF technology to gestate someone else's frozen and now unwanted embryo, hoping to bring that child to term and to raise it as their own. There was a really striking instance of this in the news. It's within, I think, maybe the last year uh, or so um, in which uh, an embryo that had been frozen for 30 years, uh, three decades, was uh, uh, implanted, gestated, and brought to term by a couple who thought that what they were doing was a kind of work of uh, Christian charity, and I'm sure in their minds it was. No doubt those who do this are often moved by several different considerations, both desiring to become parents and wanting to offer the possibility of continued life uh, to an abandoned embryo. For some, it may also be a way to deal with infertility. And although, at least in my view, in my view, we cannot say that such embryo adoption is wrong. I would not uh, say that. I think that we can hardly recommend it when we remind ourselves of the millions of orphaned and abandoned children in the world who need a familial home. If we are searching for uh, children in need of adoption, children who lack a family committed to their well-being, children who are likely to suffer continued harm uh, and probably cause continued harm unless they find such a family. These children are all around us in our society. If we have the resources and ability to adopt, it seems better for us to direct that energy toward children who already born who need a place of familial belonging. More recently and increasingly, young single women have been using IVF technology to take a yet further step by freezing their unfertilized eggs, not freezing embryos, but freezing unfertilized eggs. And they do this not because they necessarily experience uh, fertility problems, but as a, a kind of uh, insurance, uh, insurance against future uh, reproductive problems or simply in order to have time to pursue other goals before committing to marriage and parenthood. Closely connected to the practice of IVF is the, is the use of genetic testing. Indeed, it's almost impossible to imagine IVF being used as it's used in our society without uh, genetic testing. And our society has now come, by now come, I think, to consider 
genetic testing of fetus is, uh, fetuses in utero as almost routine. Um, indeed, if a pregnant woman doesn't want uh, to test uh, the fetus she's carrying, she's probably going to have to fight for that, uh, right, uh, in fact, um, uh, not, to, uh, not to do that. Amniocentesis was available already in the 1950s. Uh, chorionic villus sampling, which takes uh, tissue from the uh, placenta in the 1980s. And still more recently, what's called non-invasive prenatal testing, which can isolate fetal DNA in blood drawn from the mother, can be done fairly early in the first trimester of pregnancy, and at least in principle, were to become a little more affordable uh, than it is right now, it could enable the entire genome of a fetus in utero to be sequenced. Uh, it's also, we might note, been an extraordinarily profitable uh, undertaking uh, in the world. Now, of course, when we think about genetic testing, at least at the, at the present time, um, there is no treatment available for most of the conditions that might be detected while the fetus is in utero from prenatal screening. The only treatment that can avoid the birth of a child uh, with genetic defects uh, or disabilities is abortion, which eliminates the suffering by eliminating the sufferer. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis um, done before there is ever an implanted embryo. Uh, genetic testing in the laboratory of the unimplanted embryo moves the testing process back still further, prior even to the establishment of a pregnancy. And it's now possible to identify in an unimplanted embryo hundreds of disease mutations as well as chromosomal, as well as its chromosomal makeup. This allows the commissioning parent or parents to select only some of the embryos for implantation, avoiding in particular any that may have genetic defects and perhaps any that may be of the uh, undesired sex. In principle, therefore, it is now possible for a child to be born with as many as five people who we might in some sense call parents. Uh, the donors of sperm and ovum, uh, ova, a, a surrogate uh, who gestates a child during pregnancy, and the two commissioning parents who uh, undertake to raise that child at some point uh, in the future. So that we stand on the brink of a world, in fact, we're already in it in some ways, in which we will hardly know how to name some of the relationships that are produced by uh, this technological change. So a woman can give birth to what we might, uh, in a way, call her own grandchild by gestating a fetus produced in a laboratory with gametes taken from her child and his or her spouse. And she gestates that fetus. It's a sense in which it's her grandchild she gives birth to. People can have children posthumously if their frozen embryos are implanted and gestated in someone else after their death. And there are certainly instances in which people have, uh, or uh, uh, parents of someone who died already have wanted precisely that to be done. A woman lacking ovaries can receive an ovary transplant from an aborted fetus, in which case that fetus could become the genetic child of a mother born to that woman. By means of eggs made in the laboratory from induced pluripotent stem cells, it may soon be possible to avoid the costly and medically burdensome process of retrieving eggs from women. And given that sperm are pretty readily available, this would mean that an individual or a couple could produce many embryos, almost an indefinite number of embryos from which to choose after testing. Perhaps even 
It's a little too soon to say for certain, though you should never bet against science uh, in a way. Um, uh, perhaps even uh, researchers may be able to use induced pluripotent stem cells to make sperm from a woman's cells or ova from a man's cells, meaning that a child could be produced using sperm and egg derived from the cells of the same parent, single parent, the child. Uh, in fact, just in the last, I think it's just the last week, or maybe it's the last two weeks, um, there was a story that you may have seen some scientists in Japan who uh, produced mice with two biological fathers, uh, no mother uh, involved. First, they took male skin cells from the mouse and reprogrammed them to uh, produce induced pluripotent stem cells. And second, they deleted the Y chromosome uh, from those cells. And then they took an X chromosome from another cell of the body and used it to replace that deleted Y chromosome, thereby producing induced pluripotent cells that had two identical X chromosomes, um, an egg produced solely from male cells. They fertilized those eggs with uh, uh, normal mice sperm, and they obtained 600 mouse embryos uh, which they then implanted in surrogate mice. And from those 600, they had seven, they had seven live births. That's not a huge success rate, uh, uh, of course. But as I said, if you bet against science, you're just, um, uh, you're using up your retirement income, uh, I think. Um, uh, they, the, 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 those seven mice that they had did appear healthy, according to the reports. They had a normal lifespan and they went on to produce offspring uh, as adults. Um, the researchers granted it would be more complicated to do this with uh, human cells, mainly because the gestation period for human beings is so much longer that a lot of things could go wrong uh, in the process. But um, uh, when they said that it would be less likely, they said things like, um, uh, the one researcher is quoted saying, you know, it, would, it couldn't happen right away, probably be 10 years. I don't know how you react to 10 years, but I don't think it was a terribly long uh, period of time. One said 10 to 20 uh, years, um, but that's, um, uh, that's where we're headed. So that it's, if you, if you consider the possibility of such a child uh, produced uh, with cells entirely, sperm and egg entirely uh, derived from uh, a male, um, it's not impossible to imagine that has already been done with a lamb. A child could be gestated entirely in an artificial womb thereby um, uh, without any bodily connection of child to a mother, um, achieving in fact what Aldous Huxley only uh, uh, imagined uh, in Brave New World. Uh, but this is not at all impossible in the relatively near future, which many of you uh, will see. I don't actually expect to see it, but um, that's because I eat a lot of French fries. <laughs> At any rate, that's, that's the story of what we've done. This is, this is the story of what we have accomplished um, in the last half century or so, not a very long time in world historical terms. Um, but what I want to do now is sort of turn from this, uh, uh, the story of what we've done to, uh, to, to try to place this story into sort of larger narrative settings, uh, to move from just the facts of it to sort of understanding what it is we're doing. And we can ask ourselves, into what larger story shall we place uh, these developments in order to try to think more carefully about them and their implications? And I wanna sketch two competing narratives um, for what I will call, uh, in one case, procreation, 
very old term, uh, and in the other reproduction, which is uh, more or less what we're what we're doing today. And I want to kind of sketch these out and think about their uh, their implications, their theological implications, a little bit. Uh, clearly, I think two quite different and competing ways of understanding the bond between parents and children are at work in our society. We tell different stories where we're shaped by different stories about this most basic of human relationships. And it's just worth considering uh, how they differ and the implications of each. One story deeply embedded in Christian teaching and belief, uh, which is not to say that all Christians today are formed by it, but a story deeply embedded in Christian belief, understands the child as a blessing that is given to a man and a woman. Uh, the man and woman have given themselves in love to each other, and the child given to them uh, is a blessing upon that self-giving of theirs, aiming to express their love for each other as fully and completely as they can. They sometimes find, not always, but they sometimes find that in the providence of God, their love-giving has also been life-giving. They weren't necessarily trying to produce that, but God produced it. Um, then they receive the child not simply as a product of their aims and intentions, not something that they were aiming at, but as a gift and a mystery springing from their embrace, a blessing given to them. And they might well try to say that what the biblical writer says of Hannah after the birth of Samuel, the Lord remembered her. This way of thinking, as I said, has been embedded deeply in our culture, so deeply that it can appear in ways that have no obvious religious roots uh, at all, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's deep into our uh, culture. And I wanna illustrate that uh, for you by reading a poem it's hard to listen to somebody read a poem, uh, but I really like this poem and it's my talk. Uh, so, um, so I'm gonna read it. Um, some of you may know the poem, it's by Galway Cannell, um, uh, who I believe is no longer living. I'm not sure about that. Uh, it's a poem titled, After Making Love, We Hear Footsteps. For I can snore like a bullhorn or play loud music or sit up talking with any reasonably sober Irishman and Fergus will only sink deeper into his dreamless sleep, which goes by all in one flash. But let there be that heavy breathing or a stifled cum cry anywhere in the house, and he will wrench himself awake and make for it on the run, as now we lie together after making love, quiet, touching along the length of our bodies, familiar touch to the long married, and he appears in his baseball pajamas, it happens, the neck opening so small he has to screw them on, which one day may make him wonder about the mental capacity of baseball players and flops down between us and hugs us and snuggles himself to sleep, his face gleaming with satisfaction at being this very child. In the half darkness, we look at each other and smile and touch arms across his little startlingly muscled body. This one whom habit of memory propels to the ground of his making, sleeper only the mortal sounds can sing awake, this blessing love gives again into our arms. And it's striking how theological content appears uh, at the end of a poem. It's not in any particular way uh, uh, theological, um, uh, but, uh, and, and that content that appears works to describe what it is, that, uh, the habit of memory that propels little Fergus uh, to the ground of his making. That sort of understanding of procreation shaped Christian thinking about parents and children. And in fact, it, it, when taken seriously, it can provide 
young men and women in our society something that they are largely lacking and desperately need, a kind of a cultural script that will help them understand better um, uh, both their individual identities and their relation to each other. They can learn to see their relation not merely as a matter for choice and pursuing uh, projects, but as entry into a pattern for life given by God. They can learn that the erotic desire that they experience for each other is also a desire to give birth, to turn outward as a couple. They can learn to think of the body not simply as an instrument used by a person to produce desired outcomes, but rather as the very place in which we are personally present to others in friendship and in love. Body not just a thing that we use to produce it, but to where we are personally present. Moreover, this script that they might enact or could enact is not just a natural fact. It's, it, I mean, it's built into the natural world, but it has its basis in the mystery of God's own creative work. The opening chapter of the Gospel of John is clear that our world was created in and through Jesus, the one who is God's word of love to humanity. So also our own procreation growing out of the giving and receiving of love between a man and a woman can image the mystery of God's creative work. That's the kind of cultural narrative that I think has been embedded in our culture uh, through Christian belief. And I think, and I hope that it's more than just sort of a thought uh, about love. I think it's deeper than that. There's another competing story, uh, a story that is becoming increasingly influential in our world. Um, and according to that story, parents are people who undertake what we might call a reproductive project. The purpose of the project is to produce a child of their own, that is one who satisfies their desire for a child uh, to rear, a desire that they feel must be satisfied if their lives or are to be fulfilling or incomplete. This may be a project undertaken by two people who are married, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, it can be undertaken by uh, various other people uh, who are not married and who may have no interest, in fact, in being married, but who, for one reason or another, you know, want a child uh, to rear or children to rear. Um, and so if for one reason or another, they are unable to produce a child of their own through sexual intercourse or unwilling to produce a child of their own through sexual intercourse, they can have recourse to technological means of assisted reproduction to accomplish that goal. And they can, if they, if they uh, need to, hire others to uh, assist in that project, even perhaps hire a woman uh, uh, as a surrogate to use her body as an instrument to gestate the child. Indeed, I saw again only quite recently, um, not the last week or so, but uh, pretty recently, um, uh, an article uh, arguing or suggesting that um, what we might do is use um, women who are brain dead, but still sustain um, on ventilators uh, to gestate uh, children uh, to birth using their bodies as a kind of incubator uh, to uh, accomplish uh, that goal, um, which is sort of the, as far as you can imagine in the instrumentalization uh, of, the, uh, of the body. Now, just in terms of the kind of language that ethicists use, if we think only in terms of results of our actions, if, if that's what we think about, the results of what we do, then we may suppose that uh, the people who do this, who in one way or another take, undertake a reproductive project of this sort, have simply found another way of doing the same thing that others do through ordinary procreation. Namely, they found a way to uh, 
uh, have a child. Uh, in fact, however, although a child may result from both sexual intercourse and various forms of assisted reproduction, the result may be the same in that way. These are not simply different ways of doing the same thing. It's better read your Aristotle about doing and making uh, uh, and so forth uh, and uh, see that there's something different going on here. Uh, in the first of these, in, uh, in what we've called uh, traditionally procreation, spouses align themselves with God's act of creative love. That's the narrative in which they understand what they're undertaking. They do not suppose that the person exists simply apart from the body and just uses the body to accomplish various desired results. Um, rather, they simply give themselves to each other in love, uh, not just in spirit, but also in body. And then sometimes, sometimes God blesses such mutual love with the gift of a child, with Bill Fergus, uh, who comes along. But in the other narrative, what they do is they undertake a project seeking to produce a child who will uh, meet their desires, whatever exactly those uh, desires uh, may happen to be. Um, and they, uh, uh, they use the means necessary to accomplish that goal. So we have two stories marked by different ways of thinking about our bodies, our personal presence in the body or use of the body and our children. Uh, you know, is the body the place of personal presence in which we give ourselves in love or is the body an instrument we use to accomplish our goals? Is the child a product of our will and choosing, one whom we have made, or is the child one who is begotten, springing from the mutual love uh, and uh, therefore our equal in dignity? When we use our bodies as instruments for reproduction, as people in our culture have increasingly come to think of themselves uh, as doing, indeed, as we encourage them in many respects to do, then we learn to think of ourselves less as the embodied creatures God has made and more as free spirits detached from the body and free to use it as an object for achieving whatever purposes we happen to think good and desirable. Then it's not hard to think of the desired child as a product we have made and quite possibly made uh, to meet certain specifications. Moreover, we may then have no reason to refrain from using gametes acquired from third parties or refrain from hiring a surrogate to gestate the desired child. Those may after all simply be among the necessary means of production. That's what uh, they are uh, in that uh, narrative. And indeed, Christian women have sometimes been eager to serve as surrogates, thinking of their fertility uh, uh, simply as a capacity that they can give as a gift uh, to others. But compassion for those who are infertile then becomes a kind of formless, formless emotion. It's, you know, it's love, it's thought uh, about love, um, no longer taking its shape from God's own creative work. For if we, if we have come to think of ourselves as free spirits who may choose to use the body for whatever good purposes that we have in mind, it may be that uh, something has gone awry. It may be that our churches have failed to teach us how rightly to honor our creation as embodied persons. At any rate, God so structures human life that marital love serves both to strengthen the bond between spouses and sometimes to give rise to the next generation. We might say that both the love-giving and the life-giving dimensions of marriage, in both the love-giving and the life-giving dimensions of marriage, the most basic gift God gives to a husband and wife is the gift of time. That, at least, is the way that I like to think of it, a shared time. 
they're given time, time to learn what fidelity and love means, time for each to learn to care for another who is as different from them as their bodies are different. And that is a task that requires time, uh, actually. Um, uh, time to shape a future together, time for their union to give rise by God's providence to the next generation, time for their union to turn outward in various other shared ways as well. It's that shared time that God gives. The companionship there of marriage, therefore, is much more than a series of isolated sexual acts. It is a shared history within the time that God gives us. And likewise, when we think of the gift of children, we should see them within the context of that gift of time, not as the, uh, the result or the fruit of isolated sexual acts, as if marriage were a series of one-night stands, but of marriage as a whole. Hence, although contraception may be misused, uh, it can also be rightly used. When husband and wife seek to shape their time together in response to God's calling, the shared history of each married couple, the time that God gives them, will have its own particular shape with children differently spaced and, uh, and in different numbers in ways that are appropriate to their time, their particular and peculiar time together. Each married couple will need to attend the shape of that married life. There's no one shape that fits all. We can only say that their shared time should be marked by a companionship that is faithful for the whole of life, a companionship that turns outward to the world, usually, though not necessarily, in the child, uh, perhaps through the gift of an adopted child, uh, it may turn outward, or perhaps in other ways. It takes more work, but it can be done. But then in the context of that Christian narrative, I wanna ask what we say finally about the problem of infertility. What if no blessing is given into our arms? There's no little Fergus um, uh, who comes uh, uh, creating havoc along the way. Uh, when, when married couples who hope for children experience infertility, it is natural that they should feel sadness. For, as I said before, erotic love naturally desires to give birth. It's natural for them to hope that their mutual embrace will be creative, will give rise to a child who embodies the oneness they share. And some people hope that more than others. Um, uh, some people who had a child or two hope for it less than they uh, uh, previously did, but it's natural to hope. And it's natural that they, and no doubt their parents uh, who would like to be, I suspect would like to be grandparents, um, uh, should value the human significance of lines of kinship and descent that locate us in the world. And it's not surprising, therefore, we, it should come as no surprise that driven by the desire for what they think of as a child of their own, they may consider turning to technology of assist, technologies of assisted reproduction. I mean, that's um, uh, a very natural impulse. Now, to be sure, an infertile couple could use IVF use no third-party gametes, no surrogate, implant all the embryos they produced, and refrain from using PGD, prenatal genetic diagnosis, to screen those embryos. Perhaps in such a case, the deeper significance of procreation will not have been lost. Although, I don't know, even that limited use of IVF risks beginning to think of the child not simply as gift, but as product. But that Paragraph started with the words perhaps, okay? Um, and perhaps 
uh, IVF could be used that way. Um, but we should go on to say, to realize how rare such an approach has become in our uh, world, how difficult it will be for a couple who, uh, who start on this road to set themselves against the momentum and the desires that beginning a process of IVF involves. How hard it may be to resist the pressure to use acquired gametes, uh, to produce additional uh, embryos that are not implanted, uh, to screen those embryos for defects. Uh, it can be done, but um, it will take enormous strength of will. Uh, to manage, uh, to manage to do that, uh, strength of will most often set over against one's physician, uh, uh, probably. Um, part of the sadness of life is that we sometimes cannot, and at other times ought not, do what we deeply desire to do. And if technologies of assisted reproduction often distort the meaning of the presence of children, we should not allow that uh, sort of sense of desperation to tempt us to transform the meaning of procreation into a technical act of reproduction. So although we acknowledge and recognize the sadness of infertility, Christians have good reason, I think, to sort of resist that, that desire that can become so desperate for a child of one's own. In the first place, we should be clear. I know that not all Christians would say what I'm about to say. Okay, There are various traditions, but we should be clear that Christians have no continuing obligation to have children. It is a mitzvah for Jews, but not for Christians. Uh, to be sure, the one flesh union of husband and wife should always turn outward. They don't get married, just stare forever into one another's eyes. Um, a church, it, the union should turn outward. A child is the way in which that most naturally happens, happens almost without our thinking about it uh, sometimes, but it is not the only way for that turning outward to happen. Um, the divine word, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, spoken at the creation, has been reshaped and transformed in the history of redemption. And because the child has been born, as St. Augustine says, because the child has been born, that is, the promised child, in whom human life has been created anew, in whom, as St. Paul says, all God's promises have, have their yes, because that child has been born we have no obligation to produce generation after generation of children. Moreover, those who are unmarried or childless, whether that state is deliberately chosen or simply an accident of one's personal history, those people have an important role in the life of the church. In their singleness, they remind us that the wedding feast of the Lamb is something quite different from the restoration of our earthly marriages. And believe me, we need that uh, among Christians. Uh, uh, scratch a nice, the nice pious person sitting next to you in the pew next Sunday and ask them what's so good about heaven. Well, they'll be reunited with loved ones uh, after all. It's good that God will be there too, um, but um, uh, it's that reunion with loved ones uh, that, that, that is there. Um, and uh, what, what the singleness of some Christians reminds us is, is that the wedding feast of the Lamb is, is not that. It's not that uh, uh, restoration of our earthly marriage. It may, it may happen, uh, but that's not what is at the heart of it. And in their childlessness, in their childlessness, they remind us that the church grows not because of our natural capacity to give birth, but through the grace of adoption as God's children. So theirs is a special vocation in service to the church. And once again, um, uh, you can find a lot of articles to read that suggest that uh, the reason that the churches are declining is that Christians aren't having enough babies. 
Well, there's a sense, no doubt, in which that's true. Otto von Harnack said that um, uh, bracketing the work of the Holy Spirit, the reason uh, that explains the, uh, the rise of the Christian church to prominence in the early centuries was that their birth rate was higher, maybe. But you don't become a member of the church simply by being born, uh, uh, born even to Christian parents. That's not how that uh, happens. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the antidote to this sort of desperate search for a child of one's own is given us in baptism. I warned you uh, that this would, uh, this would happen. Um, there we learn to take seriously that as St. Paul writes, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There in baptism, we relinquish any claim to a child of our own and a child over. Uh, and having given it up, receive the child back as one before whom we now stand as the representatives and mediators of God's covenant love and care. Therefore, it is neither biology nor genetics that is at the heart of parenthood. Rather, it is a lifelong commitment to be a parent to the child whom God has adopted as his own and now places into our arms. Knowing ourselves to be God's children only by adoption, we weren't born into it. We can rejoice in the truth that whether our children have been given to us through natural birth or through, our, or through adoption, they are not our possession, but uh, a trust given us by God. Let me finally try to draw these several uh, reflections together uh, in sort of succinct uh, theological form um, uh, to try to summarize what I think it means to uh, think of God, uh, of a child as God's gift. Um, and we can, can think of this within sort of three angles of vision um, in the light of our created nature, in the light of the new creation into which we have been adopted, and in the light of the redeemed creation that God promises. If you want to see this worked out in great detail, you need only read all the volumes of Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, um, but you might be willing to settle just for these concluding uh, comments of uh, mine um, rather than undertaking that uh, task. But first, we are created as embodied creatures occupying a fixed place within the generations of humankind. Lines of kinship and descent are important. They locate and identify us. And the sexual union of a man and woman is naturally ordered toward the birth of children. Hence the child understood in terms of God's creative work is less a product of our will and choice than a gift God, God gives, a gift God bestows on the embodied love of a man and a woman. And in this way, God continues to sustain and care for the creation. Nevertheless, second, that natural kinship is always in need of transformation. We can't just rest in it or kind of appeal uh, to it. We need to be shaped in a way of life that does not think of children as our possessions. Therefore, within the church, we draw our children into that new life that we share in Jesus, the crucified and risen one. You know, there was even a period in the history of the church when uh, parents were not allowed to be uh, in certain areas where presents were not allowed to be present at the baptism of their children. They were really handing them over to the church uh, uh, to uh, receive them, uh, receive them back. Um, uh, so within the church, we, we draw our children into that new life. And in handing the child over for baptism, parents acknowledge that in the most fundamental sense, this child is not their own. I understand that it's an awful lot of work to teach many parents in the church to learn to think that way. Uh, but it's a fact 
Nonetheless, the kinship that identifies us is not determined by DNA. It is the, uh, the life we share in a new community that is Christ's body. And then third and finally, we live toward a day in which the creation redeemed in God and Christ will be fully perfected. Even now, we are given a hint of that day in the Eucharistic meal the church shares. See, I did warn uh, again about them. High sacramental uh, theology. We're given a, a hint of that day in the Eucharistic meal. And in that redeemed creation, the creation that is promised, all of us, whatever our genetic relationships, uh, our marital relationships, all of us, husbands and wives, parents and children, will share as brothers and sisters in the great uh, banquet that is the wedding feast of Christ and his church. Thank you. That was Dr. Gilbert Mylander on The Meaning of Children, Competing Narratives. Please do save the date now for next year's conference, The Future of Health, Faith, Ethics, and Our MedTech World, June 27 through 29, 2024. You've been listening to and watching the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. Our copyright is 2023 and all rights are reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the executive director of the Center. Thank you for listening to and watching the Bioethics Podcast.